have your Bibles with you this morning, and that if you haven't turned there already, based on what Jonathan was reading to us a few minutes ago, that you will turn in them now to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is found on page 813 of the Bibles that are provided in the backs of the chairs for you, if one of those would serve you this morning, and if one of those would serve you in perpetuity, please take one. And if you know someone who would benefit from a copy of the scriptures and you want to give it to them, please take it and give it to them. As we mentioned already today at the beginning of our service, today is what's known as Reformation Sunday, although there is some argument, I suppose, to be had that it could be next week, but it's closer to Reformation Day today, so we did it this week. And it is a day when we remember what God did at the time of the Protestant Reformation over 500 years ago, a time when sound doctrine was forsaken and being forsaken, not all of it, but a lot of it, by the Roman Catholic Church. But a time when God's providence broke through in a big way through some flawed but faithful servants who pursued the recovery, not discovery, but recovery of God's sound truth that was always in the scriptures, but that had been sidelined. And it's fascinating to me that in the providence of God, we are looking at this passage on what we are considering today to be Reformation Sunday, because this passage has many explicit references to core Reformation commitments. Of course, the whole Bible is filled with the commitments of the Reformation, the five solas that we've already talked about very briefly today, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria is all throughout the scriptures, but it's also all right here in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9. But as important as they all are, the five solas of the Reformation, I think I could make a pretty compelling argument that at the center of it all is solus Christus. And Christ is indeed at the center of this passage. He is its subject. He is the main character. He is the whole point of Matthew's message here, the message which he originally had for the original recipients of his gospel. And my brothers and sisters, I am afraid that we who might consider ourselves to be part of Reformed circles, miss Solus Christus a lot. Say, what do you mean? We're all about Jesus. Agreed in our confession and in our doctrine. We are committed to sound doctrine, and we must be. We are clear on justification by grace through faith alone, and we must be. We are convinced that all of life is about the glory of God, and it is, and it should be. And we are rightly stubborn about making sure that what we believe and what we say and what we do is based on the actual words of Scripture, and we must be, and may God help us to always be. But if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us could look deeply into our hearts and say with integrity that Christ is at the center of all of our beliefs, all of our words, all of our practice, whether in corporate life, like we are here now, or privately. Is he at the center of our sermons? 
Is he at the center of our children's lessons? Is he at the center of our youth group gatherings or of our church budget or of our evangelistic efforts or of our fellowship group gatherings or our prayer lunches every month? Or is Christ at the center of our family dinner tables, our personal scheduling planning, our entertainment choices, our own familial financial priorities. And so friends, this passage is totally Christ-centered and so was the Reformation and so must we be. Let's look at this passage now. Jonathan read it for us just a few minutes ago. I want to read it again. Matthew 9.1 Getting into a boat, He crossed over and came to his own city. This is speaking of Jesus. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. These are the words of the Lord. May he bless them and use them in our hearts. We're back to the other side again. Remember, Jesus in previous passages had decided to go over the Sea of Galilee, encounters a storm, gets to the other side. He has this journey to the Gadarene region with deliberate intentions of freeing some demon-possessed men and bringing his saving power, his kingly breakthrough, his messianic mission to the Gentiles, and he's rejected there. Now he's back on the other side of the other side, and he is now, it says, in his own city in verse 1. That is to be understood as Capernaum. That's what his own city means at the end of verse 1. It's not Nazareth where he grew up. It's not Bethlehem where he was born, but Capernaum, the home base of his mission. It's in Galilee. That is not a region that was known for wealth and power and impressiveness, but it is where the Messiah called home. Now, between verse 1 and the words, and behold, in verse 2, there's actually stuff that happens that Matthew doesn't record, but Mark and Luke do in their Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, known as you may know already as the synoptic Gospels. In other words, they have a lot in common. John is very distinctive in his. And so Mark and Luke record a little bit more of what happens here. I always want to be careful when preaching through a Gospel, for example, to devote attention to the text before us and not go on a potentially distracting scavenger hunt to the other synoptics, as as helpful as those parallels may be, but I do think it's warranted in this case to check out some corresponding verses to get a fuller a fuller sense of what's happening here. So just briefly, turn over to Mark 2, and we'll just read verses 1 through 4 and allow this account of Mark to fill in some of these details for us so that we might have a clear, full context. Mark 2, 1 through 4. 
When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And of course, verse 5 begins to sound very familiar. Jesus saw their faith. So you can go back to Matthew 9 now and understand that all that happens between Matthew 9, 1 and the and behold of Matthew 9, 2. Luke's account is very similar. We won't look there for now. And here are the details that, that both Mark and Luke fill in for us that Matthew doesn't share. First of all, he confirms that it's Capernaum, this hometown, confirms that that is indeed his home region. It confirms, it, it, it teaches us that a large gathering has congregated to hear him preach. It's such a large, large crowd that there's no more room even in the doorway, it says. And so ostensibly there are some people perhaps standing outside trying to hear what they can hear. Some people then come with a paralytic to be healed, but they can't get close. And so they take him on his bed, carried by four men, Mark tells us, onto the roof, remove the roof. Luke Luke specifies that there's some tiles that they remove. And then they lower him down in his bed into the house where Jesus was preaching. So that's all what happens before we get to verse 2 of Matthew 9. And evidently, Matthew doesn't think that the message of his gospel requires those details, and so neither do I, but since God has given us those details in Mark and Luke, thought we would include them for a little bit of a fuller scene setting. And so here we are, and what Matthew says in verse 2 is that some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and what happens as a result of these people bringing this paralytic to Jesus is the beginning of verse 2 excuse me, the second part of verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith. They bring this paralytic to him, and what Jesus sees is faith. I find it interesting that in all three of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus takes note of their faith. But in this account, none of the details that Mark and Luke include are included here. I personally think that the the details that Mark and Luke provide make the account a little more exciting and do help us more fuller understand the effort that it took for these people to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed. They're trying to get in. It's too crowded. There's not even room in the doorway. They go up on the roof. They remove parts of the roof. They lower him down and force their way in. But Matthew doesn't include any of that. And I suspect that it's at least partly related to the fact that Matthew's original readers wouldn't need those details to make the connection between Jesus' recognition of their faith and the faith that it took for them to do this. Evidently, no matter whether you were going through a roof or not, this required faith. And the rest of this passage does give us some clues as to the fact that there was a crowd there. You see that at the end of our text for this morning, in the very beginning of verse 8, when the crowds saw it. So there's a clue there that there is a crowd here. Even the mention of the scribes in the beginning of verse 3 more than hints at the fact that a gathering had taken place. There was not just this little intimate, intimate time with Jesus and a few of his friends. 
And you know, for a paralytic to be brought into a gathering crowd like this would have been embarrassing. People with disabilities have a hard time today. But society regarded those with disabilities differently in those days. Just in general. As a rule, there was not much regard for them at all. They were indeed socially outcast. They were not included in what quote-unquote normal people would have uh, considered the normal rhythms of life. And of course, there were no modern medical advances, no physical therapy, no pain relief, no building codes for handicap accessibility, no government programs to assist those in need. This paralytic was therefore just a helpless, hurting, and possibly hopeless person. And so to approach Jesus like this would have been a kind of embarrassing, socially risky thing to do because the disabled didn't come and be part of these sorts of things. To be carried in on a bed in front of everyone, or in this case, lowered down, disrupting the scene. We certainly don't know the, the, the hearts of the people gathered, how many of them may have sinfully thought some sort of judgmental poo-pooing thoughts, or if none of them did at all. But apparently, this would have been a, a thing that took faith to do. His friends, this paralytic's friends, along with him ostensibly, had the impression that Jesus could do something for him, and Jesus took notice of this. He saw their faith, verse 3 says. Excuse me, verse 2. Second part of verse 2 says. They had faith. It took faith to do this. Jesus took note of it. And in fact, it's what he was looking for. We know that because of what comes next. And so before we go any further, just notice Jesus' notice of their faith. That's the first thing, and it's in fact the first of five truths about Christ in this passage. Five Christ-centered truths for you this morning. The first is that Christ desires faith. It's not the first time that we have seen faith expressed in this way in Matthew's Gospel. It's not the first time we've seen Christ respond to faith in this way positively. The leper in chapter 8 verse 2 had faith when he knelt before Jesus in the middle of a crowd, we're pretty sure, and begged him to make him clean. The Roman centurion in chapter 8 verse 5 who said that all Jesus had to do was say the word and his paralyzed servant would be healed had faith. And Christ responded to those who exercised their faith in him. And Christ responds to these who do the same. Christ desires faith. And my friends, this is not a faith that is expressed or shown simply by private, warm feelings of trust. It is not faith simply related to deep knowledge of truth, but rather it is faith shown in concrete action. Action like taking some kind of risk to be with Jesus. Action like climbing up on a roof and lowering your paralyzed friend down in order for him to get in front of Jesus. That's what these paralyzed, well, they weren't paralyzed friends. These friends of the paralyzed one did. 
Because they believed so much that Jesus could heal their friend that they put feet to it. They put action to it because of what they believed. And of course they were right. But notice something unexpected happened. You remember back in chapter 8, verse 27, we saw this account of Jesus calming the storm with, G- with these words. The men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and seas obey him? What sort of man is this? I identified that as a sort of through line for the rest of the verses in this second group of three miracle stories. We're in the middle of a set of three groups of miracle stories, each of them having three miracle stories in them. And what Matthew was seeking to make clear to his readers here in this section was that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth and home base in Galilee, was indeed the promised Christ, the Messiah, the one with all authority. He calms the sea and the men say, what sort of man is this? And the rest of the verses continue to address and eventually answer that question. The demons immediately calling him the Son of God. And then this account here, which we'll see further as we go on. We see this third evidence, if you will, of the authority of Christ in the second part of verse 2. Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Here in this second group of three miracles, the authority of Christ is on display, but it's in a way that hadn't been seen before. And it's more astonishing than calming a storm. It's more astonishing than exercising a demon. It is authority displayed in His extending of forgiveness. That's the second Christ-centered truth in this passage, that Christ graciously forgives sinners. But this would have been unexpected because they brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed, right? To be healed of his paralysis. He's on a bed. He's been lowered through the roof. Please heal my friend. And we can't be sure what exactly these people's spiritual condition was or what their deepest heart's desire and beliefs were uh, based on who Jesus was. But it's safe to say that this proclamation from Jesus of this man's sins being forgiven was a bit unexpected. I mean, isn't it possible that these people might have been a little disappointed? They came for healing. Forgiveness was not exactly what they appear to have come for. But it is what this man got. And in truth, here's the point. Listen carefully. It's what he needed most. The proclamation of forgiveness from Jesus here is an indication both from Matthew as the human author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and from Jesus as the speaker in this event that spiritual healing is even more fundamental than physical healing. Whether... This paralyzed man had some sort of clear connection between his health and his sin. We don't know. That happens sometimes. Sometimes our physical conditions 
do have a connection with the choices that we've made because of our spiritual condition or because of our beliefs or the devotion of our hearts or what God is working out in our lives as a result of sinful issues. Maybe there are elements to Jesus' motivation to deal with sin first here that we're not made aware of in the text, but it seems to be the point of Matthew's account here to say three things. Number one, that the man's sin was more fundamental a problem than his paralysis was. Number two, that Jesus has the authority to forgive his sin. And then third, that the miracles Jesus was doing and what about to do in healing this man had their purpose in pointing to that authority. But look more closely at what Jesus says in response to their faith. He says, in the second part of verse 2, Take heart, my son. This is simply the, the the phrase my son here. It's kind of an informal, friendly expression indicating that this man was probably younger than Jesus. So, take heart, my son, in a friendly, warm, gracious way. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. Perhaps this phrase, take heart, is a simple indication that the young man was nervous about what was going to happen, about the situation he found himself in. Maybe it was simply a word of assurance from the Messiah to one of his children that he was there to care for him. Either way, it's beautiful. Take heart, my son. He tells him to take heart, he calls him son, and then he proclaims forgiveness upon him. But the original language could be translated, not just your sins are forgiven, but your sins are being forgiven. It's in its grammar, it is in, a, it is in the present tense, and it is expressing what's called a performative utterance. Did you catch that, kids? I know it's a tough one performative utterance. In other words, it's something that was happening right at that very moment. Jesus was performing it miraculously. He was declaring it. He was making it so. There was to be no mistake of what Jesus was saying. This was a miracle being performed by Jesus right then. He was not saying, take heart, my son. God has already forgiven you. No, he was saying, Take heart because I am forgiving you right now. There is a miracle taking place right now. Your sins are being forgiven. Isn't that amazing? And so Jesus did not respond to their faith with the miracle that they were looking for right away, but rather with a kind of surprise twist of dealing with the miracle that the man needed most, the miracle of forgiveness. And friends, I wonder how this might speak to those of us in this room today and those listening perhaps online and perhaps at a future time on a recording who really want our felt needs dealt with so badly that we often lose sight of our greater spiritual needs. Listen carefully, my friends. Jesus knows what we need most. And even more important than our physical bodies and our earthly well-being is our spiritual health, our spiritual growth, and our spiritual future. 
Make no mistake, Jesus did graciously deal with the felt need here, and he often does. But here in this text, not before the greater, more important spiritual need was addressed. And this is exactly how we want it if we're honest with ourselves. If you go to the ER after a car accident and the doctor wants to deal with your broken arm before the internal injuries that threaten your life are being dealt with, you might question that doctor's wisdom and competence. But Jesus is a far greater physician than that, and he knows what needs dealt with first and foremost. But we also see that this proclamation of forgiveness was rather audacious. Just used a word that perhaps some of the children don't know. Have your parents ever said to you, how could you have the audacity to do such a thing? If they've said that, that's what audacious means. It was an audacious, it was a bold thing for him to do. And verse 3 shows that. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. The scribes were not pleased by this proclamation of forgiveness from Jesus. Why? Well, frankly, for some pretty understandable reasons. The scribes, as you may or may not know, were the experts of Jewish law. And so above all, everyone else in that crowd, perhaps, these guys knew how to make sure all the rules were being followed to the letter. And the Jewish law stated that in order for sins to be forgiven... You needed to take a trip to the temple. You needed to have an offering prepared. You needed to have that offering offered then by a priest. It was necessary in order for sins to be forgiven in this way. But Jesus' proclamation includes no such offering, no such trip, and no such Levitical priest. So it's understandable that they would be upset by this proclamation. Because here's the key. To them, he was just a Galilean teacher. He was just an up-and-coming rabbi. They had no idea who this guy really was. But when he said what he said, that he was forgiving this man's sins, they knew what he was saying. He was saying that he had the authority to forgive sins. He was claiming to do what only God had the authority to do. And so the scribes are talking to themselves in what must have been some sort of a huff. Did you hear that? What in the world? Who does this guy think he is? This is blasphemy. Mark and Luke, in their accounts, explain the reason a little bit more. They use the phrase, only God can forgive sins, and oh, they are right. But Matthew just assumes his readers will get it. Jesus here is clearly claiming divine authority. And that's either true or he is actually guilty of blaspheming. And this reminds me of what C.S. Lewis famously said about Jesus. Some people refer to it as the trifecta argument. Some people just call it the trilemma as opposed to a dilemma. That Jesus' words and life lead us to only one of three options. Either Jesus is God, he does have the authority to forgive, or he is a lunatic, or he is a liar. He can't simply be an important historical figure, or a good teacher, or a nice guy with some helpful things to say, if he's going around claiming to be God on high, while not actually being God. 
He'd either have to be completely bonkers out of his mind, or he would have to be a charlatan otherwise. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying explicitly with no question that he has the authority to forgive sins, that he is God. And so no wonder, in one sense, the scribes freak out about it. But in the beginning of verse 4, we see this. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? That's the third characteristic. The third Christ-centered truth here is that Christ discerns hearts. He knows their thoughts. The original wording could be translated, he perceived their thoughts. You might even see that in a, in a version that you are using this morning. That word perceived doesn't necessarily require it to be the case that Jesus, Jesus was using his divine omniscience, though certainly could be. Maybe he was supernaturally discerning what they were thinking, or maybe just in his incredible wisdom, he noticed their whispering and their aghast faces and their flabbergasted gestures, or to use uh, a word that, that Brian introduced me to, they were rather ferhutilated. Did you know that was coming? <laughs> Have you ever heard that word, kids, ferhutilated? I had never heard it until Pastor Brian used it with me once. You're, you should use that one. I'm feeling rather ferhutilated today. They were flabbergasted, they were aghast, and they were whispering to themselves. Maybe they just made an astute deduction. doesn't really matter. The point is he discerns their hearts. He sees what's going on, and he calls them out for it. In fact, he calls their response to his words. Do you see it at the end of verse 4? He calls their thinking evil. And so you might say that when he says this, he is actually adding to the reasons for them and anyone else nearby feeling the same way as them to be even more ferhutilated or flabbergasted. Because what he's saying here is, I have the authority to forgive, even without you having to go to the temple, even without you having to make an offering, even without you having to go through a Levitical priest, because I'm God. Oh, and by the way, you don't think so? You're wrong. It's just more. This is crazy stuff. This is audacious. Now, we need to make an important, altogether brief aside here. My friends, we are going to keep seeing the scribes and the Pharisees and their hearts and their words and their actions on display more and more throughout Matthew's Gospel. And I'm afraid there is something very important that we need to see in them. Listen carefully. We need to see ourselves in them. This might ruffle your feathers. I don't know. But I'm convinced that 21st century American conservative reformed evangelicals have more in common with the scribes than anyone else in this story. We fancy ourselves devoted to what's right, knowledgeable about the truth, faithful to the proper way of life like they did. They knew what God's Word really said. We know how people are really supposed to be living. Isn't it true that like them, we are often skeptical about what God is doing or is not doing? often limited in our thinking, only seeing the immediate moment in front of us rather than the big picture. 
self-righteous in the face of others' failures, judgmental towards others, prideful, legalistic when it comes to a commitment to doing what's right. The Pharisees and scribes were the kind of people who, if they went to heaven, they would be so shocked every time they saw someone. Oh, wow, didn't expect him. And that's kind of like us sometimes, isn't it? Some of us would be so shocked to see this person or that person or that individual who's got some sort of issue in heaven. But you know what, friends? We ought to be shocked that we're there. And so I'm just saying, friends, we better be honest with ourselves as part of the whole of 21st century American conservative reformed evangelical church, whatever labels you want to add to that, and be quicker to identify more closely with the scribes and Pharisees here than those who are being honest about their desperate need for the Messiah's salvation and willing to give up everything to follow him. Might it just be that the scribes and Pharisees sound a whole lot more like us than not? And by the way, it's coming up in the very next passage as well. Why is Jesus tolerating all these bad people? That's coming up. And so here in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, we have this first instance of many more controversies between Jesus and the religious leaders. And we just need to realize that as we stand in judgment over these self-righteous, legalistic, cold-hearted men, we need to make sure we see ourselves when we need to. Okay, back to the incredible discernment and wisdom of Jesus. His incredible wisdom doesn't stop at simply knowing however that worked, what was going on in their hearts. He goes on to brilliantly deal with all three issues here in one fell swoop. Let's read verses 5 through 7 again. He's speaking to these scribes and says, For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise and pick up your bed and go home, and he rose and went home. This is utterly breathtaking stuff, my friends. He, Jesus, proves his authority to forgive sins. He heals the man's paralysis, and he deals with the charge of blasphemy all at once. Amazing. Look more closely at what he's saying. He is saying in verse 5, as he makes this argument here, that it is easier to say that someone's sins are forgiven than it is to say something that leads to a miraculous event happening. That's what he's saying. You can say anything you want about something rather abstract or spiritual like sin and forgiveness and need no empirical, tangible evidence to prove that something happened. But healing, saying to a paralytic be healed would have to require actual evidence that it had happened would have to literally be seen and so in order to provide evidence that he could indeed do something unseen such as forgive sin he displayed his supernatural power by healing the man's paralysis now you might say when you read this verse this is kind of confusing isn't forgiving sins the harder thing to do well sure i suppose so but it's not easier to say and that's the point here that's the point To claim to forgive sin is, in theory, easier because no one can prove whether you did it or not. But to say, take up your bed and go home, is much harder to pull off 
because they're either going to be healed or they're not. And so in order to prove that he had the authority to make this proclamation of forgiveness, he tells the man to rise and go home, and it's exactly what he does. It's incredible. In just two verses, Jesus silences the charge of blasphemy, he heals the man's paralysis, and he proves that his proclamation of forgiveness was something to believe. Praise him! But did you also see that little phrase in the beginning of verse 6? Very beginning. He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It's a relatively small phrase, but my friends, it has massive implications. He calls their charge of blasphemy evil. He argues that saying rise and walk is harder to prove than it is to prove a proclamation of forgiveness. And then in this sort of broken up phraseology, Matthew narrates what's happening here with some kinetic action. And he says that Jesus said, essentially, I'm going to show you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And then he heals the man. Jesus was saying here that what he was about to do was prove that the Son of Man did have authority to forgive. But if you've been a Christian for a long time, you might miss something massive there. He's saying that he's proving that the Son of Man has authority. And it was his authority that was just called into question by them calling what he said blasphemous. And again, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you might say, Big deal, whatever. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man a lot. You're right. He does. But to do so was to add to the audacious nature of his claims here. The grammar is clear. Jesus proclaims forgiveness. The scribes say, this man is blaspheming. And Jesus says, I'll prove to you that this man is not blaspheming. This man is the Son of Man who has the authority to forgive. And by using that title, Son of Man, he was adding to the astonishment of those listening because the Jews knew that this title belongs to the one that was identified in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, who approaches Yahweh, who approaches the Ancient of Days, and is given all authority. Let's read it. I have it on the screen for you. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not pass be destroyed. And for Jesus to equate himself with this title was to say that guy in Daniel 7 who approaches Yahweh and is given all authority and a kingdom and dominion and everyone on earth bowing before him is me. I have the authority to forgive. I am the Messiah. And then to prove it Jesus telling the man to rise and go home, and that's what he does. My friends, this is astonishing. 
This is breathtaking. This is amazing. And so the fourth Christ-centered characteristic in this passage is that Christ fulfills Scripture. Here we see again Matthew's commitment to pointing out Jesus' ministry's connection to Old Testament prophecy. We see Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture here in two ways. One is through the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy in general, such as this one about a Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. And secondly, through fulfilling the promise that part of the Messiah's ministry would include healing. And so the healing of this paralyzed man was in part a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would deal with, would take, would address the griefs and diseases and sins and sorrows of his people. But this event also, this event as a whole, also displays Christ's fulfillment of Scripture in that he clearly claims messianic identity, messianic authority. And so, Christ desires faith. Christ graciously forgives. Christ discerns men's hearts. And Christ fulfills Scripture in His ministry. But all of this is leading somewhere. After the crowds see this event, two things happen. Number one, they're afraid. And number two, the text says they glorify God. Now, what exactly this glorifying God looked like in terms of precise words and actions and thoughts, we don't know. But Matthew says that the result of Jesus' ministry here at this event was fear in light of the power of God and attention and glory being given to God for making this happen. And that's the fifth and final Christ-centered characteristic here, that Christ brings glory to God. And of course, this is not an instance where Jesus is verbally expressing his desire to glorify the Father like in his high high priestly prayer in John 17, but it is a result of his ministry here in the text. However, I'm afraid that the response of the crowds here was also only partially right. They respond to this event, verse 8, with fear. And that's a right response. We must respond to the power and authority of Jesus in fear. Scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus is a gracious, gentle, kind, compassionate, and loving king, but he is also a king that has authority to forgive sins, which means he also has authority to not forgive. And so men should fear the one who has authority to forgive because it means he's the judge. And oh, friends, we could wax eloquent about this, couldn't we? There is not enough fear of the Lord in our hearts, in our churches, and in this world. He is the King. He is the Judge. He has all authority. And so they were afraid, as they should have been. And as I already pointed out, they glorified God. And that's good too. They recognized that God was the one who was overseeing this event and that He deserved credit for it. Amen to that. But, what's that little note at the end of verse 8 say? They were afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, I strongly suspect that Matthew is trying to tell us something here. Something that is evident throughout the rest of his gospel and indeed the other gospels as well. 
that the crowd didn't get it. Not fully. They didn't glorify God for sending His Messiah. They didn't glorify God for the authority to forgive sins displayed through the healing of this man's paralysis. No, they glorified God for sort of dispensing some of His authority for a man like this to do such a thing. Matthew wants his readers to see that Jesus is the Son of Man, that He is the Messiah, that He is God with us, that He is the authoritative King. But it seems like what Matthew is recording here is that the crowd is coming up short of that. That they're not all the way there. That they are seeing Jesus exercise His authority somehow. That they are fearing the Lord in response and saying, wow, God is awesome, which is good. But if I'm right about what I think Matthew is expressing, then it's a great tragedy. Because then once again, Jesus is coming to His own, as John says in his Gospel, coming to Capernaum, His hometown, and His own are receiving Him not. It's not quite the same as the Gentiles over in the Gadarene region saying, get out of here. We don't want your salvation if it's going to cost us our livelihood. It's not quite like that. But as Doug O'Donnell puts it in his brilliant commentary on Matthew, amazement isn't enough. After Peter preached about the fact that the Jesus of Nazareth who was killed at the hands of the Jews was actually the promised Messiah that they had all been longing for in Acts chapter 2. Look at I have on the screen for you. He said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, or Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And here's how they responded. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Those hearing and receiving the message that Jesus is the Messiah must not only stop at amazement like this crowd did here. Look at what God has done. Isn't that awesome? That's great. But it is not far enough. What shall we do in light of this? And Jesus says, excuse me, Peter says in Acts, repent and be baptized in response to the amazing truth of Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as the Christ. And so, my friends, as you come away from this passage this morning, be amazed. Be amazed at Jesus. Stand in awe of His healing power, of His messianic identity, of His gracious forgiveness, and of everything else. But don't fail to respond to Him. Turn to Him. Follow Him. Keep following Him every day of your life. Because He is the Savior. He is your only hope in life and death. And so if you're here today and you've never embraced Jesus as Savior and King, do so today in faith and receive His grace forever. And if you're already His, keep turning to Him 
and away from sin every day, away from your faithlessness, away from your worldliness, away from your legalistic Christ-not-centeredness, and keep trusting Him. Keep growing in your love for Him. Be amazed, but respond. Have faith. Have wonder that leads to action. What a beautiful passage for us to examine on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is central. Forgiveness is only found by grace through faith in Him alone. He is the fulfillment of Scripture, the prophecy of salvation found in the Messiah and for the whole world. And all that He is and all that He's done is to the glory of our triune God. May He be glorified in us today and every day. Let's pray together. Lord, may it never be the case of any of us in this room. May it never be said of us on that last day that we had a kind of intellectual assent to the truth about who Jesus is and what He has done. That we were amazed at the beauty and glory of His nature and His works. But that we never responded to Him in faith. And may it not be said of any of us who have responded to Him in faith, as is said of some later in the New Testament, that our hearts grew cold to Christ that our lives began to resemble perhaps a more worldly, a less faith-fueled, a less Christ-centered heart. We know that every single one of us who has been born again has been made new and have been transformed and are being sanctified from the inside out. But our flesh remains. We wrestle with sin. We wrestle with temptation from the evil one and his forces. We have worldly forces that oppose us every day. And so Lord, as we consider ourselves to be and call ourselves reformed evangelical people or people devoted to the solas of the Reformation as revealed in Scripture and people who are devoted to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, may it never be the case that we stray from that even for a moment. We know, though, that because of our flesh and as sin-stained people, we will struggle, we will be tempted, and we will stumble and fall from time to time throughout the years that we have remaining in this life. And so even as we pray for Your grace to keep us from stumbling, as it were, we thank You that Your grace is freely given to us. And that even when we stumble and fall, You are ready to forgive. Help us to live in light of this passage with awe and wonder at who Jesus is and what He has done for us, but to put feet to our faith, 
to make changes in our lives, to perhaps even go home and literally take an inventory of everything we're doing and the ways that we're thinking and the decisions that we're making in light of who Jesus is and what he has done so that we may live for his glory and not ours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Let's continue in prayer silently in our own hearts for just a few minutes.